I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. And now we are here in Chicago. We're doing 14 states, 26 cities. But I want you to know, when we roll, we roll for the whole nation because voting is important everywhere. Folks, I am on the road, and my ride-or-die team at the African American Policy Forum has been with me the whole way. Every city, every county. We're stopping all over the country. Every parish, every township. Minneapolis, Cleveland, Kenosha, D.C., Wilmington, Savannah, Jacksonville. And our friends at the Transformative Justice Coalition and Black Voters Matter have been by our side each step of the way. They've been banning books, banning teaching, firing teachers. That's Barbara Arnwine, founder of TJC and a longtime friend of the pod you're hearing. We decided to embark on this tour because we couldn't sit by idly as state after state pulled essential readings on American history, structural racism, and gender diversity from library shelves. We're calling our bus tour Books Unbanned, from Freedom Riders to Freedom Readers, and it goes from October 8th to October 21st. We're working in partnership with the 10 Million More Black Voters Initiative to activate and mobilize Black voters across the country and to hand out 6,000 banned books for free, all to ensure that everyone has access to these critical stories, even if teachers can no longer teach them in schools. And we're bringing you along for the ride. No doubt you've seen the headlines. Advocates are sounding the alarm about a set of measures that they say target teaching and writing related to LGBTQ issues, race, and more broadly, freedom of speech. Across the country, we've seen a coordinated effort to censor, gag, and silence the voices, the histories, and the knowledge of Black people. This rabid campaign has reached levels we scarcely would have thought possible just a few years ago. It's happening everywhere. I'm based in California. It's happening in California, which is a very liberal state as well. There are some school districts here who have anti-critical race theory policies. They're also going after, in some cases, books about history. So there was a book about Martin Luther King and the March on Washington in Tennessee. The group Moms for Liberty said that that violated the state's new critical race theory policy. So they're going after topics and after subjects that Americans have generally considered to be heroic. This is a deliberate attempt to suppress our history, our truth, our experience. They're trying to label our aspirations for a racially equitable and just democracy as divisive. 
They're trying to impose an official story, reviving a celebratory blast to the past, which forces us into silence, into compliance, into a time when we were voteless and voiceless. No doubt, you also know that in reality, banning these books is a concentrated effort to stifle all of that transformative energy we saw in 2020, which saw multiracial and multigenerational crowds demanding tangible racial justice. The bans are a direct response to that summer of racial reckoning. They're an attempt to dislodge the progressive ideals that took hold in the hearts and the minds of individuals, public institutions, and even in corporations across the country. And they're an attempt to distract people from identifying and understanding the systemic racism that shapes our lives. It's um, Ruby Bridges, this is your time. This is a Ruby Bridges book. Y'all need to know about her, man. Man, man, she was the first person to go to an all-white all white school. school. And did you all learn about Ruby Bridges in school? Yeah, yes. we sure Y'all, we did. learned about her last year. We learned about yeah, her last year. We learned about her last year. Oh, they what got food. What do you, what do you think oh, yeah, of, they got food. One question, one question. What do you think of the fact that some kids aren't allowed to learn about Ruby Bridges now? I think... They just been racist again. And what did when you learned about Ruby Bridges' story? How did it make you feel? Um, sad and kinda mad, kinda. Cause they've been racist. But you're glad you know the story. Yup. We're on tour to remind everyone of our power, and to point out the real reason these books are being censored. The real reason people want to stop us from discussing America's racial history and its contemporary consequences. We know that efforts to silence Black stories, ideas, and histories are inextricably linked to efforts to suppress the Black vote. When they make racism unnameable, they make racial justice unreachable. And when racial justice is unreachable, our multiracial democracy is unattainable. So this fight for the right to vote is part of the fight for the right to read, is part of the fight for the right to be, and it's part of the right to survive in this country and to thrive. On this tour, we're calling out the scourge of racist censorship together with the danger of racist vote suppression. And we'll need all the help we can get to right this situation. Because we only need look at fascist regimes throughout history to see that censoring literature is often the first thing that groups attempting to overthrow a democracy will do. The denial of other rights and freedoms will surely follow one after another until we wake up in a country we don't recognize. And what grows in its place? will be the polar opposite of the multiracial democracy we're fighting for. The tragedy is, we've been here before. But the silver lining is, we have examples from the history of Black resistance in America to draw from right now. With this tour, we're taking a page from the book of fearless activists who came before us from the tremendous moment in civil rights history when students and faith leaders got on buses to desegregate interstate travel. They called themselves the Freedom Riders. They rode buses from Washington to New Orleans, demanding that the country and the world hear their voices. 
they dared to take up space in deeply racist cities where, despite federal laws prohibiting segregation, Black travelers faced brutal violence and the very real threat of death simply for daring to board a bus or for standing in waiting rooms once considered for whites only. They did it anyway. And in so doing, they sparked a wave of similar protests across the country, all seeking to make de facto segregation a thing of the past. With the Books on Band tour, we go from freedom writers to freedom readers. Powered by the spirit and legacy of freedom fighters like John Lewis and Diane Nash, who in word and deed encouraged us to make good trouble, we're riding through cities where the Black vote is so powerful that the opposition wants to stamp it out any way they can, including cutting off our access to our own history. We're talking with people across the country about the books that scare our opponents so much they'd rather outlaw them than risk the chance that these powerful ideas can spread to future generations, as we saw happen in the summer of 2020, and as we see happening today. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. The 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. My name is Cheyenne Townsley. I'm a sophomore here on Lincoln campus. This book being banned, it just tells you what society we live in. You know, we live in a world where it's claimed that we're so free and allowed to think how we want to think. But why is this book banned? You get what I'm saying? If we're, if we're in a society where we can speak and act and, and protest and things, but we're not that free. You know what I'm saying? We're still being suppressed even today. There's many methods from slavery and back then that are still being used today that are being overlooked. I think banned books like these should not be banned. And coming to schools, especially like black colleges, we're, we, we are the next generation. We need to learn about this because we're going to take over and we want change. We're complaining and we're mad right now. So we need to find solutions. And the solution might be in this book. We're writing in solidarity with educators and librarians in regions where anti-CRT laws have made it impossible for them to do their jobs without fearing legal repercussions. And we're counteracting the resurgence of voting suppression with our allies at the Transformative Justice Coalition and Black Voters Matter. The only way to fight those who would rather burn our democracy down than to see us living free is to arm ourselves with knowledge and go to the ballot box. There's an alarm bell ringing that we cannot ignore. We'll see you on the road. But first, on today's special episode of Intersectionality Matters, we have the one and only Barbara Arnwine back on the show. Barbara and I pulled out our mics while we were on the bus between tour stops to talk about why we're hitting the road, the power of this movement, and what's at stake if we don't turn out in droves for the upcoming midterm elections. Here's our conversation. So, Barbara, we've been on the road together <laughs> for, what did you just say, seven days? Seven days. We're yeah. on our way to our 14th stop. 14 stops. Six states. Six down. states. And we're, we're, on, we're on the bus now. Yes. So, our listeners, you're, you're literally on the road <laughs> with us. And we've been alerting people that there is 
an important election coming up. You've said many times that polls have been telling us that 50% of the people don't even know there's an election That's coming right. up. So we've been votercating throughout our neighborhoods. Sometimes we've votercated directly to the polls. We've arrived at celebration villages where we've been eating good food. <laughs> we've been sharing our enthusiasm about our vote. We've been dancing. And we've just been excited about this opportunity to show up and show out on November 8th. And we at APF have been so excited to go along for this amazing ride. We've been handing out forbidden books, free books, to families, to kids, to adults. Some of these books have been challenged or even banned from some school libraries under the anti-CRT laws that have been spreading across the country. And at the same time, we've been mobilizing people to share their voices, make their desires known by going to the polls. So first of all, I am just really grateful for this opportunity to join with you, with our many partners, including Black Voters Matter. It's been so incredible, my friend, and you've been an inspiration throughout my career. So I'm just so excited to have you back on Intersectionality Matters. Well, listen, Kim, you've taken this to a new level. I mean, we've always had our beautiful seminars, webinars, truth be told. We've been tearing it up, you know, having all these great guests and prominent speakers. But this time, we're taking it to the streets. Taking it to the streets. That's new. That is new. Grassroots all the way. And people are responding. And you've been doing really amazing education. When you said to the people of Michigan, your state is the sixth, sixth most active state in banning books. Yesterday we were in Pennsylvania, third. And you told Ohio and they were like, what? I mean, people have been just freaked out because this movement, as vicious, as impactful as it has been, has been undercover. And most people have no clue. And when they hear it, they're like, what? And they're shocked. They're upset. And they have been motivated to action. And so the banned books also has been received so well because it's something very unusual, unique. The first day, Minneapolis, we had a little girl. She couldn't have been more than six years old. Just running around with her book. And we're and we're loving watching the little kids sit down and start to read yes, the books. Yes, Right there where yes. we are. So it's just a beautiful thing. Well, you know, Barbara, you talked about some of the things that we've done in the past. And I want to tell you something I bet you don't remember. You were my guest on the very first episode of Intersectionality Matters. You probably don't remember. And we were talking about the 2018 midterm elections. And I, I don't have to tell you, Trump was in office. And we talked about something that you call the rise of white ethno-nationalism. Yes. This idea that white rights, which we know, you know, it's code for white supremacy, um, is a growing force in our uh, political culture. Um, and some of this was being justified and reinforced all the way up to the top. It was coming from the White House. Now, this was before 
January 6th, obviously, it was before how all of this would culminate in the most significant threat to our democracy that we've had in modern times. So here we are again. It is 2022. We got a different president, of course. But unfortunately, it looks like we need to have a very similar conversation because over the past couple years, we've seen a massive surge in anti-black racism, and this has been through vote suppression, banned books, and anti-CRT legislation. So just to get started, why are you, why are we putting so much energy right now into getting black voters out to the polls? What's at stake in this November midterms? It is really quite shocking how pervasive white supremacist doctrine and speaking has been since we talked in 2018. Buffalo had not happened in 2018. That kind of hatred, that kind of, uh, you know, entitlement feeling that you can just go and slaughter black people had not really taken off the way it has now. I mean, it is the just the bigotry that has seeped into the common language and the common politic of our time is, is horrific. And, you know, to think that DeSantis down in Florida is touting his anti-woke, which means anti-black to the people he's speaking of, is just sickening. And turning it into a political force. That, oh, yes. That's allowing what, what you had called you know, white ethno-nationalism yes. to come to the center, to the it's very grown. center of American politics. It, it's not a fringe movement political movement anymore. It's at the center of an entire party's politic. And that is predictable. I mean, it was. this is the logical extension of the Southern strategy. For our listeners, um, talk, talk a little bit about the Southern strategy and how it links up with the lost cause, Daughters of the Confederacy, the way that they tell, you know, the history of Reconstruction as a horrific moment that happened to them, the way they push back against school integration, the way that they have resisted um, our our ability to, to vote all the way to January 6th, you know, which was framed as we're taking our country back. Well, back from who? Right. right. What, what, how did you lose your country? You lost an election. Right. So how do those things link up in this particular well, when, critical um, moment? President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He said we have just given the South to the Republican Party. He said that at the time. And the Southern strategy, people, was purposefully designed to do one thing over and over and over again, and that was to stoke white resentment. That is fundamental to the strategy and to create a sense among white Americans that they are the victimized, that they are being second place. And, uh, and what is unique in the last number of years is the embracing of what they call the white replacement theory. And that has become just universal now. And remember the young men who killed people in Buffalo, he was all talking about white replacement theory. They're talking about it openly on Fox News. They're talking about it openly on different programs now. And that has driven 
the white resentment, driven a an adverse politic, driven more racial hatred. You know, for 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 decades, um, the the threat to American democracy was framed as coming from outside, right? right? And now we're in a moment where what has been the Achilles heel of American democracy has been white supremacy. That is the, the kryptonite, if we might say, <laughs> uh, to this you know mighty uh, democracy. The fact that actually we have not lived in a democracy that has embraced multiracial uh, citizenship. It hasn't seen itself as elevating all the voices and running fair and free elections. What I wanted you to speak to um, along these lines is there's a study by the Brennan Center for Justice that showed two things that I think really amplify what you're saying um, of those nearly 400 bills that you have been talking about and trying to raise awareness around years. for 11 years in, in moments where a lot of folks even who are you know in the civil rights racial justice community they didn't really see how critical these bills actually were, but the other side did. So one of the things that the study revealed is that race is a factor, perhaps the critical factor that has been prompting people to vote for leaders who introduced these bills, people who are threatened by racial progress, people who uh, were not activated by George Floyd, but were frightened by seeing all of the people who were coming out to demand racial justice. These are the constituencies that are available for recruitment through this new revised Southern strategy. So I'm wondering at this point where, you know, we have growing voter suppression, and you've been fighting against that, and we've had idea suppression, which I've been fighting against, and we've been fighting hand in hand. Same thing. How do we show people what the connections are between these? Because I know a lot of people are like, why are y'all passing out books when you're going, you know, to encourage people to vote? And other people are like, well, why are you encouraging people to vote when the real issue is, you know, suppressing our history? How do you link these together so people understand why we're sitting on this bus going to all these states together? Well, you know, people absolutely need the knowledge. Uh, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, the Trumpism, et cetera, the MAGA, you know, ism. But what people forget is that 20% of Americans hold extremely racist ideas. Every polling data consistently for decades now show that. So when you have a Trump-like candidate, they're going to always build into that base. They can always exploit and amplify that base. That's millions of people, 20% of our population. So they're going to always be able to do that. But what's really ugly is that they now have united with billionaires and corporate interests who really hate our vote. And they hate our vote because African Americans, in particular, Native Americans also, and many Latinos, many Asians vote for regulation of corporations. 
They do not believe in unlimited corporate power. And they also vote for social justice. They vote for, you know, stronger increases for social security, the protection of the safety net for affordable housing. They vote for, you know, to feed the hungry. They vote against homelessness. They want, you know, these kind of solutions that also mean the corporate taxation should be fairer and they should not be getting away with not paying taxes. We got multi billion dollar trillion dollar corporations that pay no taxes and they are totally convinced they shouldn't and so they under under the cover while they're saying oh we love black people we're gonna you know put them on our commercials we're an equal opportunity employer we stand behind black people and and at the same time they're funding all of this voter suppression all of these right-wing you know, uh, fascistic notions. This is really sad. So this coalition, uh, undercover coalition between a, a variety of interests. You've talked about corporate interests. There's, you know, obviously political interests that are are using the fact that there's a readily available group of people. You talked about that 20%. And then there's a, a larger group that can be influenced yes. by that 20% yes. and mobilized to, you know, go into school board meetings and and, yes. you know, scream like bloody hell about this you know, made-up drama around critical race theory. You know, we, we don't want our kids taught that stuff. What I think is so fascinating is what is in that stuff that they don't want people to learn about, they don't want people to hear about. And one part of it is, we've been here before, you talked about the combination of, you know, corporate interests using racism in order to regain power locally and nationally. But isn't that exactly what the Redeemers did when they tried to overturn Reconstruction, where black people finally had a voice, were able to create public schools and and actually tame corporate power and 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 create you know coalitions with labor to protect workers this happened before but i don't think people know much about that and i think they don't know about it because it's not taught and what these uh, you know what people don't understand is that knowledge is a liberation tool intersectionality was created as a liberatory tool. People don't understand that. Critical race theory is a liberation tool. And when people understand their past, they're better prepared to deal with the future. They know that this is what may happen, that we've seen this combination of corporate interests, elitism, combining with people's racial resentment before. And if we knew that was possible, then we know how to prepare for it and to speak truth to it. But they don't want us to speak the truth. And and to to put to put a point on it, the role of education in erasing that history is profound because that's where the daughters of the Confederacy would look at school books and say, reject a school book that said uh, enslavement was cruel. Reject a school book that said that the Civil War was fought over slavery. Reject a book that said that the founding of the Republic was you know, based on slavery. These were ways in which the lies about our Republic were deeply structured into public 
education. So when we finally have a civil rights movement, we finally have people coming through the education system and saying, okay, we're going to have to correct some of this history. We're going to talk about Tulsa. We're going to talk about Wilmington, which we're going to, where there was a coup that took over a democratically elected biracial government. So that's what the anti-CRT campaign is really all about. So if they know their history enough to pull out a page and and play it to the T, don't we have to know our history to have a prophylactic strategy of resistance? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. When you and I stood in Brazil, because we've been on several continents, several nations together. We've been ride or die for a while. I mean, (laughs) we stood in Brazil. People told us something that really shocked me then, but it continues to inspire me is they said that the most unique difference between why black Brazilians haven't had the level of progress that black African Americans have had is that they never had HBCUs. They never had historically black colleges and universities. That their education was just put to the ground. And a lot of erasure, a lot lot of of denial. And one of the things they learned is if you label racial justice agitation as anti-American, then you can suppress it. And that's something that's happened in other places as well, including Brazil. So the idea that the people who are agitating against racism are the racists, right? That's that's kind of a, a global phenomenon that allows them to silence us and allows the racism to continue unremarked. They're trying to make racism unspeakable. What happens, Barbara, when racism is made unspeakable? What happens to democracy? There is no democracy if you don't have a competition of ideas. That's fundamentally what democracy is about. It's that people compete for office. They compete for political power based on the difference of ideas that the majority of the public embraces. And so if you suppress certain ideas of racial equality, if you suppress ideas of multiracial democracy, if you suppress the ideas of a diverse workforce, if you suppress the ideas of teaching the true history of this country, then you destroy democracy. There can be no democracy where you have no free ability to talk about different ideas. I've been in fascistic countries. I've seen what happens when people are restricted from talking about other ideas because they might get jailed, they might be uh, killed, they might be expelled from their country. I've seen it and I know what it looks like and I'm telling you it's ugly and our country is on the road because there's a global movement of authoritarianism, a global movement of neo-fascism. We cannot sit back in isolation and not understand all of these critical connections because this fight is worldwide. And you know, Barbara, so many times I've I've been in conversations when we've talked about the, the, the slide to fascism and some people, they say, oh, don't be alarmist. Or they say, it can never happen here. Or like, or like President Biden said, you know, uh, when, when they marched, that's not us. And I, and I 
see that as a moment and you know I've been saying this a lot what history have you not been reading because to, to even say that can't happen here is to ignore that um, redemption and white supremacy and the fact that black people were written out of the political equation for nearly a century what is that but our own unique brand of fascism what is it when the story that can only be told about our founding is one that eliminates the role that slavery played in making the republic what it grew to be that 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 whole idea of telling only an approved narrative of our past right. one that is glorious one that we're trying to return to like redemption we want to redeem you know or like MAGA, Make America Great Again. That is a key factor in societies that have become fascistic. So when people say it can't happen here, it tells me that they have one idea um, about democracy and a different idea about um, racial justice, and they don't see them as, as necessarily being connected. We have been trying to say we cannot save our democracy without saving anti-racism. Right. How do we get that message across? Just like we're doing, teaching, preaching, because they've been taught, calling her the preacher. Calling Kim the calling preacher. Calling you the preacher. Oh, no, oh, no. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell people how one time we did something and people asked you where your <laughs> church was. <laughs> I think that's in your future, Barbara. No, I think that that's just you know, what is past. But I do think that it's so critical that when we've given out the books, People have picked up the 1619 project as well. The the I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't give away enough. I mean, people want that book. They, they want to understand, and they want Ruby Bridges. Yes. They they want to know that story of the six year old girl that integrated New Orleans public schools. And all the young people holding the hate you give. Yes. Up. That's been a huge popular one. And something happened in this town. Yes. It's, oh my it's gosh. A, That's it's a, a book for book. parents to help Amazing. their kids understand uh, racism. Something happened. A black man was shot in our town. Exactly. They're getting those books because it helps them to be better justice advocates, better racial justice advocates, better advocates for a different America, not some retrograde America where none of us could have had the jobs we have now, where none of us could live the way that we live now, where we were segregated. That retrograde, when they're talking about they want to go back to the 50s, really, to the 1950s, when women were almost absent from political office. This is all about the determination for white male domination. And, it, and it's, it's, a way, so it's a way of waving that flag yes. without having to say specifically, we liked it better when we were in charge right. and y'all didn't have a voice or a vote. But we need to be able to read it. We need to understand what kind of imaginary they are trying to recreate right. behind this idea of things were better when we were in charge. Right. And what we're trying to say also is as women rise up, because you know, there's a really amazing change in our electorate right now. It's women have been absolutely registering more than any other group in this country. Women are really upset about what happened in the Dobbs case and the threat to their reproductive rights. The issue is, can we build within that constituency the same anti-racism movement? Can we build 
the same awareness to understand that it's not only our bodies that are under attack, but it's our minds. What we learn, what we think. What we're exposed to, what we're allowed to read, what we're able to know. Can we build that greater awareness? Can can this be an intersectional moment? Yes. And we've been looking for that moment. We've been yearning for that moment. That's our challenge right now. Yeah. And to keep building within that. So I'm happy to see some inklings of it. Mm -hmm. But the question is, can we consolidate it? Because it can be a missed opportunity if it's all if it's uh, you know allowed to only be seen as about your your femininity. And let's talk on that note because it, it's also where we ended last time about black women Uh-oh. and their role oh. in the electorate. So we know that black women have really been the voice and the energy behind many of the most progressive dimensions of our our current political environment. And we also know that black women's loyalty to progressive multiracial democracy has not always paid off uh, in in the way that the theory tells us. The theory tells us we live in a pluralistic society. You move in and out, you organize, you express yourselves, you vote, and then you become, you know, basically a, a represented group that can help shape policy. It's been a struggle yes. for black women and for some black folk, when we are out in the road, they will, you know, rightly question yeah, but, you know, how's this working out for us? Right? Uh, and so we have got to both talk about the imperative to be politically active, but that doesn't end when we cast the ballot. That's, that's just the entry, the condition of possibility, electing people who actually care about a democracy. Yes. The next step is how we activate that political power. So what are you seeing in the midterms and beyond for black women? I think black women will always be the progressive core in this country. I've looked at polling data uh, for North Carolina about black women's viewpoints versus white women, black men, white men. Unbelievable. Black women are just in a universe of their own. They're they're in a stratosphere of their own. On every progressive issue, climate, social services, Anything having to do with school, education, uh, provisions for children, maternal care, they're just in a different world. I mean, the delta between the black woman and even the black man, 20% deltas. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing what goes on in the cultural environment of black women speaking to each other, talking, sharing, envisioning, because people forget we have a vision for what we think America could be and what it must become. And people don't understand how driven black women are. It's not just some kind of, well, it's nice, it's a great notion, driven to make sure it becomes a reality that is actualized. And that drives our opponents crazy. I I think it's so funny that they have tried to politicize woke, right? Because, you know, in many ways, uh, black women, our vote, we might be considered the sleeping giant, right? Although we're kind of, you know, waking up um, and people are seeing what difference we can make. I, I think the Senate is you know, looks the way it does because of black women. And Barbara, you were saying yesterday that one of the challenges 
is to keep voters activated beyond the national campaigns. Yes. That many of these issues that we're talking about from city to city, from uh, vote suppression to school boards erasing our history or never actually telling them at all, um, these are local decisions. But we often don't see folks until the presidential campaign. Every time we have spoken during this bus tour, and we have spoken a lot, we've been teaching you got to vote down ballot. When we walked through George Floyd Square in Minneapolis, and we walked over the names of the hundreds of slain black men and women, when we went to the Say Her Name, Say Their Name Cemetery, and walked and saw all Tamir the women. Rice, Tanisha Anderson, oh my God, Mary, Michelle Cousseau, Tiana Jefferson. All we of them. saw all of those names. It was chilling to the bone, but it was the reason why we went back and we kept telling people, if you believe that Black Lives Matter, then you're going to vote down ballot. You're going to vote for your sheriff. You're going to vote for your clerk of court. Your judge. Your, your judge. You're going to vote You know, for your district attorney. You're going your to state be attorney. totally obsessed with making sure that all of those offices have the right people in them and that that is how you make Black Lives Matter. So, Barbara, people have been activated. They've come to get, they've come to get our books. I guess I, want, I, I, I wouldn't want to end our conversation without answering the question of, of people who say, yeah, okay, I know I need to vote, and I know I need to oppose these book bans, but I'm still not sure what this critical race theory thing is or what it has to do with anything. Isn't it really just about a law school course? What are we telling people now in, in, in response to that? What is it and why should I care? You know, it's fascinating. The biggest intellectual divide that I see from people who become really strong anti-racists are the folks who understand white structural racism. It's not taught. Most people don't think about it. They think that racism is an individual bigotry. They think it's institutions, but they don't understand structural racism. That's what critical race theory helps to teach. And if you don't really understand it, then you can buy all these piecemeal solutions that aren't solutions. If you don't understand it, you don't know comprehensively how you have to restructure our society, dismantle the barriers, make sure that there is the openness in the society for people to advance of all races, all genders, all all you know, nationalities, all combinations. Uh, if we don't do that, then people don't know what they're really fighting for. And what we teach people is not only what to fight for, but we teach people how to do it well and how to make this to translate the theory into the policy into the policy into the practice and of course we've been into saying the, the whole time that critical race theory uh, isn't so much a thing it's a way of thinking about a thing and it's a way of practicing around it 
if you understand that race is still a feature of your life, if you shape your behavior around the awareness that certain things might happen, like when you give your kids the talk, um, right. when you put your hands on the steering wheel at 10 and 2 o'clock position, when you see those yes. uh, lights in your rear view mirror, you have a theory that race is going to shape the yes. kind of interaction that you may have. You are practicing critical race theory. You're not practicing what those who are opponents think we should be, which is colorblind. If you, if we really wanted to be colorblind in this society, most of us would walk around not having any sense of why certain things look the way they do, what may happen from moment to moment, and how we can protect ourselves and mobilize against many of these things. So yes. the main thing that we hope that people come away with is, is that colorblindness is not the way to understand the importance of it's our vote, where this vote suppression is coming from, and the threat that we are facing of losing our democracy. Colorblindness ain't going to tell you that. Knowing our history will. And I will say to people, listen, not only do you need to know the history, not only do you need to reject all the false theories, we see color, that's just the reality of life. But I do want people to understand, too, that politics is not just voting day. Right. That you got to be involved 365. Just like every day you plan how you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to do, you need to have your politic in your mind. What am I going to do to make our nation a better political nation? Tracking what's happening, going to those school board meetings, going to those uh, you know, city council meetings, you know, holding people accountable, writing the senator and saying, that's not why I elected you. Mm -hmm. What the hell are you doing supporting a banned book? campaign? What are you doing uh, supporting all of these retrograde policies? I will not vote for you. If I voted you in, I can vote, vote you, you out. out. <laughs> and people got to have that theory. They got to have that kind of engagement, that kind of awareness, because too many of us just vote and think that everything's all right. That's no, right. you got to hold them accountable. You got to be involved daily. It's 365 days a year. <laughs> and that's what our ancestors passed on Thank to you. us. The will to survive. Thank you. The tools to see what we need to see to survive. And now it's up to us right. to cultivate and make sure we can pass that on to the next generation. Right. But what I love is people are going to take those books. Yeah. Not only are they going to read them, they're going to hold them tight because they mean something different now. It's not just a book. They are aware that they're part of a movement, a movement to protect democracy, a movement to protect the, the fruition, the exchange of ideas, and that they're going to get in there and help build a better America. Well, Barbara Arnwine, you are a national treasure, but more importantly, a treasure to me. I could not be more excited to be on this with you. Yes. You keep me going. You keep us going. You are truly living the spirit of all of the ancestors. <laughs> so thank you, Barbara Arnwine, for being with us again on Intersectionality Matters. Thank you, my dear. Folks, we're on the road until October 21st, hitting cities all along the way through the South before our final stop in Jacksonville, Florida. And we want you and your friends to come meet us. Come get a free band book. 
Come talk to your community leaders about how these attacks on knowledge are affecting you, your children, your people. And most importantly, come get excited about the power of your vote. We've got speakers. We've got DJs, food, books. We've got the Hoop Bus. Now all we need is you. We hope you'll join us. For information about where we'll be, go to aapf.org. You'll find the tour stops and you can sign up for our newsletter where we'll send daily updates. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AA Policy Forum. We're riding on these buses for you and we hope you'll come out and show us some love when we get to your town. See you on the road. We're on the bus. Hold on. <laughs> We're on the bus. We're on the bus. We're on the bus. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by our team at the African American Policy Forum. Our senior producer is Nicole Edwards, and support was provided by Julia Sharp Levine and Kevin Minofu. We can't do this show without you, so make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and we'll be back soon. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.